Welcome to the podcast of the United Church of Bogota. We are a Bible-based church ministering to the English-speaking community in Bogota, Colombia. We invite you to join our diverse fellowship as we encounter God in worship and experience the impact of His grace on every part of our lives and in our world. To learn more, please visit our website at ucbogota.org. starting a new series this morning on the life of Joseph. Um, so if you've been here for any number of years, you'll know that we've been going through each of the patriarchs uh, one at a time. So a couple years ago, we did Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob. And now here we are, the life of Joseph, the gospel according to Joseph. Joseph is a very famous story in the Bible, and it's a really uh, tragic story, a tragic story of a family that is broken sinful, pretty awful to each other, and the tragic consequences that result. But it's also the story of God's grace and his restoration of a broken family. It's a story of how God takes evil and how he turns it into good. And maybe most importantly and most relevant for our passage this morning, it's the story of how he loves and redeems both the victims of sin's ravages and the villains who who perpetuate it. Um, So I'm going to go ahead and read the entirety of Genesis 37. You can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to join me if you would like, um, and then we will uh, talk about it a bit. Genesis 37. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he had made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to the dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream and this time the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now, his brothers had gone to graze the father's flocks near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? He replied, I am looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man said. I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. 
So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come, now let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty, there was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, The boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning I will, will I go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. So word of the Lord. Let's go to prayer. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for um, this story, the story of uh, brokenness, but also thank you, Lord, that you are a God who likes to make beautiful things out of broken places. I pray, Lord, that you would reveal to us our sin, but also your righteousness and your grace this morning. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Are family curses real? Maybe you live in a family where there is a family curse, or you have talked about the superstition of a family curse um, through your family that has haunted you um, through the generations. But um, one family that definitely believed they had a curse were the Habsburgs. Um, If you know anything about European history, at least in the Uh, Last couple millennia, you would know about the Habsburgs. They are one of the uh, longest standing ruling and wealthy families in Europe. In fact, they still exist to this day. Um, But particularly over a a span of about 500 years, they were the prominent family in Europe, um, ruling Austria, Spain, France, Mexico, and even other places. Um, But the story goes that despite all of their prestige and power, their family was cursed. Um, The story goes that a Habsburg ancestor had uh, had his life saved by a raven. 
The raven had saved his life. I don't know how a raven would save anyone's life, but this raven saved his life. And in gratefulness to this raven, he built a tower, and he invited ravens to come live and dwell in this tower as thankful as his thankful response to what the ravens had done for him. However, a couple hundred years later, a Habsburg descendant decided to get rid of all the ravens from the tower and then to rebuild uh, his mansion above where that tower was. And from that point on, the ravens were cursing the Habsburg, so the story goes. So in these battles that they would go into, whenever they would lose a battle, some leader of the Habsburg would have a vision, some sort of miraculous vision of these supernatural ravens um, that were apparently responsible for their loss in battle. But not only that, their whole family struggled with all kinds of misfortune and, and bad luck, you might say. For, a, for over a period of 200 years, only 50% of Habsburg children lived past the age of one. That's a true, that's a true fact. Um, I mean, it might have something to do with the fact that they just intermarried each other the whole time. But um, it was cursed. It was the curse of the raven that caused this, apparently. And then, of course, there were many famous Habsburgs that were strangely assassinated or or executed, or died mysteriously. Famous ones that you might recognize their names, like Marie Antoinette of France um, was a Habsburg, or Maximilian I of Mexico was a Habsburg. And then perhaps the most uh, far-reaching death of all of them was the death of the Habsburg Archduke Ferdinand, which not only meant his death, but also the beginning of World War I and the deaths of many others. Was the Habsburg family cursed? I don't know. Um, I don't know if uh, if if I don't know if I believe in curses of ravens or superstitious curses. But you might be surprised to know that the Bible itself does, in in a way, talk about a curse that does pass down from generation to generation. We see this in Exodus 20 when God is giving his people the Ten Commandments. And the second commandment, this is what God says. He says, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Okay, so there's the commandment. Don't commit idolatry. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Maybe when you first read this or you first hear this passage, you think of God as somehow getting retribution for something he didn't like that an older generation did, and so he's getting retribution for that sin by punishing the children. But that's not exactly what he's talking about here. In one sense, it is true that the guilt of Adam's sin passes down from generation to generation. So we are all guilty and we are all in need of God's grace. But he's also talking about a very natural reality is that when we sin, our sin affects the next generation. And then that sin affects the next generation. And then that sin affects the next generation. Our sin has a ripple effect and the consequences spread out from us and causes effects to the next, to our children and our children's children. The passage that we're reading this morning is a case study of generational sin and the damage it does. So this morning I want to use this passage to look at this curse, this generational sin, 
And I particularly want to look at the victims of generational sin, the villains of generational sin, and its Savior. So let's talk about the victims. Who are the victims in this passage? Well, before we can see who the victims are of generational sin, we have to understand this generational sin. As I mentioned over the last few years, we have looked at the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And as we studied them, or as you have studied them on your own, perhaps you notice a recurring pattern. There's a number of recurring themes across the different um, patriarchs, but one of those recurring themes is a pattern of sin, a pattern of polygamy, favoritism, and jealousy. Polygamy, favoritism, and jealousy. Abraham, you might remember, old man called by God, um, but he did not have any children. God told him, you are going to have a child, but Abraham did not trust God. Sarah did not trust God. And so Abraham had a child with Hagar, the maidservant of, um, of Sarah. However, Isaac, the promised son from Sarah, was born uh, years later, and when that happened, Sarah was incredibly jealous of Hagar and demanded that Abraham kick out Hagar and Ishmael from the family and send them away. There's the very beginning of the polygamy, favoritism, and jealousy. Isaac was the favorite son. So Isaac grows up. Isaac has a wife. Fortunately for him, he only has one. And um, although he only had one wife, he and his wife both play favorites. They have two sons, Jacob and Esau. Isaac, his favorite son, is Esau. He makes it very clear to Jacob that Esau is his favorite son. Esau, even though they're twins, Esau is going to get the blessings. Esau is my favorite. While Rebekah made it very clear to Esau that Jacob was her favorite. And their favoritism actually led to a complete uh, dissolution of the relationship between these brothers that became competitive and eventually became murderous towards each other. And Jacob had to run away from his family, never to see his mother again. So Jacob, having experienced the favoritism of his parents and the damage that it had caused, proceeds to do the exact same thing. Jacob has four wives, or two wives and two concubines, has children with four different women, but he makes sure that all of his wives know that one of them is his favorite. Rachel is his favorite wife, and they all know that. Um, I do want to make a, uh, mention something real quick. Some people have said in the past um, and continue to say that, well, it's clear that the Old Testament promotes polygamy. Um, and I think all you need to do is read these stories to see that Although the Bible describes polygamy, it is far from prescriptive. Polygamy and multiple wives and multiple uh, mothers to your children leads to nothing but chaos, leaves nothing but damage and destruction in its wake. It's not descriptive. I'm sorry, it's not prescriptive. It's descriptive of what happened. And so that brings us to this passage, though, this passage where once again polygamy, favoritism, and jealousy rear their ugly heads. We're introducing the first few verses to Joseph, okay? Joseph. Joseph is Jacob's 11th son, but it is his first son by his favorite wife, and therefore Joseph becomes his favorite son. Now, 
Um, well, it says right here. Let's read this real quick. Verses 3 and 4 says, Now Israel, meaning Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Maybe if you're a parent here, you know, kind of go through stages, but maybe there's times when you get along better with one kid or another, but you would never, at least you should never, tell your kids that you have a favorite. That's a terrible, terrible idea, um, and you shouldn't even have one to begin with. But Jacob not only had a favorite son, he bought, her, bought him a robe and basically told all of the other brothers, hey, this is my favorite. Just so you guys know, I don't love you nearly as much as I love Joseph. That's literally what he was saying to the brothers, and the brothers understood that. So here's some victims. Who are the victims of this generational sin, this recurring pattern of favoritism, jealousy, and polygamy? Who are the victims? The victims, well, first I see the victims as the 11 brothers, right? These 11 brothers who had, Jacob was their full father. They should have had his love, but they did not. They experienced rejection from their father and inability to gain his approval. They were locked in as not being good enough. Same thing with the three mothers that were not Rachel, Leah, Bilhah, and uh, the other one, Zilpah, whose name I forgot for a second. They're, they're victims here. They're experiencing the mistreatment by their husband, um, who is not giving each of them the love that they deserve. Then, of course, uh, a victim here is Joseph. You might not think of Joseph as a victim because he's getting such good treatment, but the way that his father is giving him unwarranted favoritism is actually creating enmity between him and his brothers. It's creating a relationship with his brothers that is going to turn into something terrible. All three of these are victims, and I think that we can, in a sense, relate to them. Okay, I don't know if any of you guys have a, a father and four mothers, but um, what we do have is we have parents who are not who are sinful. We have parents whose sin, whether directly targeted to us or just indirectly affecting us, has damaged us and affected us in various ways. Perhaps these particular struggles that Joseph had and and his brothers are are the similar to yours. Maybe you had a family that was full of. Uh, jealousy, or maybe one child in your family uh, was more the favorite, the golden child, and, and the others didn't feel like they lived up to the standard. Or maybe you had a parent who um, had infidelity or um, was not committed to uh, a father who was not committed to your mother, or a mother who is not committed to your father. So you understand the damage of living in a home with those issues. But even if those issues don't resonate with you in particular, Every single one of us can look at our parents' sin and see some of the ways that it has affected us. Um, so whether you're affected by your parents' addiction, perhaps, or, your, or their insecurities, maybe you're affected by uh, their anger or the opposite, their passivity. Uh, maybe you're affected by them being super legalistic or maybe just super licentious. The ways that they were sinful has affected you. And how does it affect you? Will it it causes differing types of pain in you, differing types of damage and longings 
that you have. Um, let me give a couple examples. I won't be able to go through. Every single one of us has this, but it just looks different. Um, let's say you grew up in a family with an alcoholic. Often people who grew up in a family whose father or mother was an alcoholic tend to struggle potentially with alcoholism themselves, or they struggle with some sort of anxiety or, or desire to control to try to make sure that they've got everything under control because they've been walking on eggshells their whole life, so they've got to make sure that they don't step on any. Um, there's all kinds of ways that having a father who is an alcoholic has deeply affected and damaged you. Same thing with just a parent who doesn't give out approval. Maybe you had a father who was just very harsh or a mother who was very harsh and never gave you approval. And so to this day, you deeply struggle to feel good enough. And the list goes on and on. Whatever your personal issue, your damage is. And so the question then is, what do we do with this damage? Well, I'll tell you what we actually do first. Um, we tend to regularly pass on their sin instead of changing pass on their sin then to the next generation. Because in this story and in our story, the victims of sin are also the villains. Same people. The victims are the villains. So who are the villains in this story? In this story we got here for us, we see a number of victim, I'm sorry, a number of villains. One is Jacob. Jacob who experienced favoritism growing up and then harms his children in the same way that he was harmed. Then we see Joseph, who he received unhealthy favoritism from his father, and out of that damage, he then lives it out in pride, pride and arrogance. Verse 2, you see, the very first thing we ever learn about Joseph before we learn about the dream coat, or before we learn about the, uh, before we learn about his trip to Egypt, anything about that, the first thing we learn about Joseph is that he is a tattletale. Right? The very first thing we learn he does, does is that he had been out in the fields with the sons of the concubines. You know, the less than. You, know, you, have Lee, you have Rachel here, then you have Leah here, and then you have the concubines and their kids down here in Joseph, sorry, in Jacob's list of favorites. He is with the least favorite of the sons, the concubines' sons, and he's out there and he comes back to his dad to suck up to his dad and say, hey, let me tell you what they were doing. Gives them a bad report. Starts off as a tattletale. And then verses 5 to 11, Joseph actually receives these amazing dreams from God. And um, it's funny because he tells them both to his brothers. Um, The first one he tells, and basically in the dream, he's, uh, there's the, uh, they're all harvesting grain and his sheaf grows higher than the other sheaves and then their sheaves bow down to him. He thought it was a good idea. Whatever that dream means, he thought it was a good idea to tell his brothers, which obviously is going to make them mad at him, and they do. They get very mad at him, so he's pridefully using these dreams to prop up his own glory, even though these dreams are from God and about ultimately what God is going to do. And then not only that, he gets the bad response the first time, and he still thinks it's a good idea to tell the second dream, which is a very similar dream about the stars and the sun and the moon bowing down to him. Um... Very arrogant, very prideful, worst na- at best naive, but at worst, um, pretty full of himself, hurting his brothers, his relationship with his brothers. And then, of course, the clear villains in this passage are Joseph's brothers, right? 
Now, of course, they are hurt themselves. They were hurt and abandoned emotionally by their father. And the way they react to the pain that they have experienced is they then turn it on Joseph. You notice here in verse 4, actually, it's interesting. It says, when his brothers saw that their father loved him, meaning Joseph, more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him, meaning Joseph. So they see what their father is doing wrong, and their anger doesn't get directed towards their father. Their anger gets directed at their brother. Um, So they get mad at his dreams. And then, of course, when Joseph comes to find them out in the fields, they do something unthinkable. They plot to kill him. They saw him in the distance, and before he reached him, they plotted to kill him. Generational sin playing out with more generational sin. Now you might ask yourself, well, it seems like there's at least a couple of the brothers that are good guys. Reuben here and Judah, they both stand up to try to protect Judah's life, but I think, I think we give them too much credit if we think of them as the good guys here. Reuben, is he the good guy? He says in verses 21, verse 21, he says, let's not take his life. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take them back to his father. If you read the chapters before this, you'll realize that Reuben is not on any sort of moral high ground here. Um, Many commentators think that Reuben is just trying to gain favor from his father. You see, Reuben is the oldest son. Reuben would have um, been the one that traditionally would have had the most favor from the father, but he does not have it. So perhaps rescuing his father's favorite son might be a good way to get some credit in his father's eyes. And then, of course, Judah here. Judah's the one that stands up and says, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. So Judah is the one who convinces them not to kill the brother eventually, but instead to sell them to the Ishmaelites as a slave. Um, I don't know, if it, he says this thing, he's like, he's our brother, he's our own flesh and blood, which sounds pretty ironic in the sense that you don't sell your own flesh and blood to slavers. That is not something that you do. But also, Judah's not really care, he doesn't really care about his brother here. He has been hurt by his father, and so he has just decided, okay, here's a way to profit off of my brother's bad luck. Let's sell him and make some money. Not exactly noble. So what we see here is we see a bunch of victims who are also villains. Perhaps you've heard the phrase, hurt people, hurt people. Hurt people, hurt people. Every single one of us is a victim. and Every single one of us is a villain. Every one of us has been hurt by the effects of sin in this world. We've felt it in our families, from our parents, um, or lack thereof, potentially. We also have experienced hurt from people around us and their sin. And the damage that has been done to us has also exacerbated our pre-existing sinful nature. Out of the hurt we have experienced, we try to find healing by demanding fulfillment from other things or demanding fulfillment from other people. 
that cannot fulfill us, and in doing so, we cause more hurt, and we continue the chain. We perpetuate the cycle of generational sin. And here's the thing, that keeps us, I mean, if you've been hearing this, and you're like, oh man, I, my parents were the worst. It's their fault that I'm like this the way I am. Well, you're going to blame them? But then who, who can they blame? They were hurt people. They were hurt people who hurt people. So do they blame their parents? They blame their parents, their parents, their parents, their parents? It goes on and on and on. No. Our sin is our own. We perpetuate the cycle. Wow, Pastor, thanks so much for the depressing sermon this morning. My hope is that we do feel convicted about this and we actually see that our sin isn't just our own. It actually does have ripple effects. It does damage other people outside of us, including our kids and the children of the next generation. The good news, though, this morning is that you cannot fix it. That's good news. Because there is someone who can. We have a Savior. Where is the Savior? Where is the good news in this passage? Well... One of the hard parts about preaching the story of Joseph in smaller sections is that we don't get to see how the story ends yet. Spoiler alert, when we zoom out and we look at the whole story of Joseph, what we see is that even here, even in this moment when everyone is at their absolute worst, even now God is orchestrating a a marvelous story of restoration and reconciliation for this family. Even now, he is orchestrating events to lead to not only the physical protection of this family, but also to bring them together in a way that not a single member of this family would have imagined was possible at this point in the story. And what does that tell us? That tells us that God loves these people. He, even in the midst of their sin, in the midst of their victimhood and their villainhood, he loves them deeply and he lo- longs to restore them from their brokenness and he longs to forgive them from their sin. And you know what? God loves us in the exact same way that he loved this family. When we zoom out even farther, what we see is that the book of Genesis is a story, is a story of our world, a broken world, a world where sin has entered and stained everything, has broken everything. And yet it's also the story of Genesis, is the story of how God chose this really screwed up, messy family to be the one through whom he would bring restoration, to bring a reversal to the curse that is, called, that is on the whole human race. Generational sin of any type needs someone who is going to break the chain, someone who is going to stop the bleeding and turn the family line in a new direction. And so from this messy family, this messy family of Abraham, actually from the line of Judah, this one who is only concerned about profiting off of of Joseph. Out of this family comes Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who flips the script, the one who doesn't perpetuate generational sin, but instead begins generational righteousness. He's the one who, like Joseph, had his clothes stripped 
from him. But it isn't because Jesus was a prideful, arrogant boy, but because he, although sinless, decided to give himself up so that we might have life in him. So that we might have new righteousness in him to break the pattern of generational sin. So when we come to him as as people, as when we come to him in repentance and faith, he invites us into a new family. Now it's a family that is not perfect this side of heaven. I'm not going here to say that Christians get it right all the time. They definitely don't. But it is a family that is being renewed in the image of God. Adam no longer is our father. Jesus becomes the new father, the new race through which we um, generationally proceed from. He loves to take the ways that we have been damaged by sin. That's what our God loves. He loves to take the ways we have been damaged by sin. He loves to even take the ways we have done damage in our sin, and he loves to redeem, restore, and flip the script to create something beautiful that will show his grace and his glory. Now here's the thing, as Christians, this side of eternity, you are unable to live in a way where you do not hurt others. If you're a parent out there, you cannot be a good enough parent where your kids are not hurt by your sin. That is impossible. You will not be able to do that. If you're not a parent even, you cannot be a good enough person where people around you are not hurt by you in some way or another. Your sin will affect other people. That is the truth that Scripture tells us. However, we can live as repentant people. We can live as people who are willing to say, I acknowledge my sin and I desperately need Jesus. He is my only hope. You can live as a parent who doesn't have to get everything right, but can can repent quickly. No matter who you are, you are called as the people of God to be people who, when you fail, you humbly admit your failures, whether you intended to hurt someone or not, you humbly can admit them. You can seek forgiveness from those you harm. And you can go to the Lord in repentance. Repentance for what you have done. And faith that He is He's good. He loves you. And he is going to make beautiful things out of your mess. Um, There's a podcast I've been listening to done by Christianity Today that if you have not yet listened to it, I highly recommend it. It is very, um, very well done. Very good. It's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It's it's about a... um, It follows a megachurch in Seattle um, led by a man by the name of Mark Driscoll, who you may have heard of. Um, And that church basically went from tiny to huge and then collapsed almost overnight. Um, It's a story of a lot of terrible things. Um, But here's why I think the podcast is great, because it's not just a, hey, look how bad they were. This is how the podcast is introduced each week. It says, it's the story of one church who grew from a handful of people to a movement and then collapsed almost overnight. It's a story about power, fame, and spiritual trauma. 
problems faced across the spectrum of churches in America. And yet, it's also a story about the mystery of God working in broken places. Podcaster does a great job of exposing some of the, the brokenness in that church and the ways that those patterns can be found in many churches and for us to be careful of them. It's a good warning podcast, but it's also a beautiful picture of how God works in broken places. The theme song to the podcast is uh, by a band called King's Kaleidoscope, and it's uh, the chorus goes over and over again. So as he's reading this intro at the beginning of the podcast, the chorus is saying over and over again, it's saying, paint the beauty we split. Paint the beauty we split. It's a prayer to God. It's, a God, it's God asking God to say, in, our, in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our sin, please come and make it beautiful. Come restore the things we have broken. Come paint the beauty we split. And this is the God we serve. We serve a God. We love a God who loves us in this way, who loves this world so much that he will give himself in order to paint the beauty we split. He loves to work in broken relationships. He loves to work in broken families, and he loves to make things beautiful despite us. Praise the Lord. He loves to paint the beauty we split. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for um, the stories you tell, stories you tell of um, where we are both victims and villains, Lord, but you long to redeem us. You long to make us right. You long to heal us. You long to convict us of sin. You long to draw us to yourself. Lord, we just ask you to paint the beauty we split. We ask you to make beauty out of our things we screwed up to redeem those situations, to call people to yourself, to rescue the next generation, the generation after that, and the next generation of that after that, make the new family be one of repentance and faith. For all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to support the ministry of UCB, please visit our website at ucbogota.org.